Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This week, we are going to unpack the Classics opening weekend with uh, Amloop on Saturday, Kern, Brussels Kern on Sunday. Kind of had a surprising winner on Saturday with David Ballerini. Uh, kind of a predictable, well, I'm kind of a predictable winner on Sunday, but we'll talk about that a little bit more with Mads Pedersen winning at Kern. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool had an amazing, amazing performance on Sunday. We'll talk about that too. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash btppod or, or sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Um, there's a free weekly edition. If you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it, you'll absolutely love that. It's a no-brainer. Sign up for it. And there's a premium um, edition that's daily during Grand Tours and just more frequent uh, during the rest of the year. Uh, and there are some other benefits, like you get a 12 free months of Strava premium if you sign up. You get a discount on Stages Cycling products, and Cure of Switzerland is our new clothing partner there. So just check that out if you're interested at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Um, well, back to the racing. Let's talk racing. There, uh, for the, the opening weekend, it, it's kind of, I, I find it difficult to figure out exactly how to talk about these races because we're all so excited for them we've waited all winter the classics are back everyone's pumped and i feel like we tend to read too much into this i mean for example no one has ever won omloop and the tour of flanders in the same year just because it's probably because it's too hard to hold peak form for five weeks i mean the tour of flanders is on april 4th which is like uh i think the biggest i think the biggest classic the best classic um, but Perry roubaix is a week after that. That's probably a, bit, a little bit more of like a crowd favorite. Those are both big races. We could just say equally big. So the big races are five and six weeks from now that you'd want to peak for. So it's it's just too early. I mean, it makes total sense no one's ever won those two races. Um, performance is not totally uncorrelated. Um, if you're just complete crap at Omloop, you you really it's it's actually probably not enough time to totally dig yourself out of having no form so it's this tricky line where you want to be pretty good but not sharp enough to win anyone who's raced a bike at any type of level knows there's a big difference between like a top 10 finish and then just being having that extra sharpness to win just when you're on a winning streak you really you you know you're on borrowed time. You can't keep that forever. You're just like on a, you're on a razor's edge. And once you fall down the other side of that pyramid, it's a steep, steep fall. Your fitness goes up on a, goes up on an escalator, goes down in an elevator. But having said that, we're going to read too much into these races. So Omloop on Saturday was, I mean, the way you would classify these is Omloop is the bigger of the two. It's a world tour race. Just over, I guess it was originally, it's kind of, it's like the sister race of Flanders, where it's 50 kilometers shorter, but it goes over a lot of the same roads. They're both in Flanders. And it actually features the Tour of Flanders old, I think pre-2000, I think 2011, no, 2012 maybe is when they changed the finish at Flanders, but Amloop keeps the old finish. It's uh, the Kapelmu and the Bosberg back-to-back, and then kind of a flatter run into the finish. Uh, but they're very different races. And I think traditionally Omloop was like the left wing, the left wing newspapers race. And then Tour of Flanders was the right wing newspaper race. But don't worry. I think I love Tour of Flanders. I'm not a fascist. I think you can support it without being a right wing European fascist. I think those days are gone. So that's good. 
but that 50 kilometers difference makes it makes a huge difference. Like for example, I heard they went up the Kapamu at the same I heard Sep Van Mark's time was faster than Fabian Cancellara's time in the famous I think that was the 2010 Tour of Flanders when Fabian Cancellara like famously just ripped up the climb. It's a beautiful climb. If I mean, it's actually sad that it's not in the finish of the Tour of Flanders anymore, especially when it's packed with people. But that's an iconic, iconic scene in cycling history where Tom Boonen just got blown up by Cancellara. Cancellara went up so fast, people thought, like, there's, like, still to this day, people think he had a motor in his bike. There's, like, a famous YouTube video breaking down why he has a motor in his bike during this performance. But to put into perspective how much difference those 50 kilometers make is apparently, like, the Peloton together rode up this climb faster than Fabian did. Um, in 2010. I, I'm not sure if I believe that, but for this, just for this exercise, we'll pretend it's true and it will show us how much um, more fatigue is in your legs when you get to the finish at Flanders with the 50 extra kilometers. And the, I mean, the best example of this is it was a 40, I think it was a 43 rider finishing group at Omloop, which I could not find a documented case of this ever happening. This is normally like one out of dribs and drabs, like two groups of two or three, maybe a group of three chased by like a larger group of 10 or 15. Um, I, I could not find another example of 43 riders finishing on the same time. Maybe this was 45. And the next one I could find was 1992, 43 riders finished together at the front. So this is highly unusual, but this should tell us just how much more difficult those monuments are and those bigger classics are later in the year. Um, a lot happened in the race. I, I sent out a newsletter, um, I mean, late Sunday night, I guess, depends where you are in the world, early Monday morning, um, with my race notes from it. Uh, I went as detailed as I could without going over the substack allowable limit for length. So I packed as much in there as possible. I missed, you know, I didn't include everything, but I think that's, that's okay. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pace us, meter us out in these early races. We don't want to like, you don't want to go crazy over consuming these but i thought the big takeaways were like a crashes every corner it's crazy like no one knows how to ride their bike i went i assuming that's because people just don't have these guys don't have as much race race uh kilometers in their in their minds in their legs at this point in the year than they normally have because all those early season races were postponed or canceled second note is wow julian alaphilippe i said on saturday in the subscribers only discord that this was probably the best performance I'd ever seen from a non-race winning rider or a rider who didn't win the race. I mean, he was essentially on the front from 50k to go until he got dropped with 3k to go. But he was just, he just made this race. He was splitting it up on the climbs, on the bergs, and then was so he he split like a super elite group off the front with 43k to go. 44k to go and then it was just solo just dumped them went solo until you know, he dumped them at 32k to go he got caught right before the capital the capital at 18k to go and then i i thought most impressive you know nine out of ten times when that happened you just you just sit up you're just like oh my day's done you know i'm blown but he just stayed on the front they caught him but he just stayed on the front which was key because it gave his teammate david ballerini you know, someone to 
it allowed him to stay at the front but not eat a bunch of wind because Al- Alaphilippe could do that for him. And Alaphilippe did a really good job positioning him until I think he got dropped with 3K to go, a well-deserved drop. And then Ballerini was led out by Florian Seneschel, who did a fantastic lead out. Instead of pulling off, he kind of pulls off to let Ballerini goes around him and then slots right back in behind him to block other riders from passing, or just not blocking him, but adding extra distance other riders would have to travel to go around him to pass his teammate in front of him. I mean, super savvy. The whole day was just like a Dakota quick step clinic. They really... That I've heard this term a bunch. I think this might be a European term. Bossed this race. If they bo- they bossed this race. I mean, this was like no one was winning this, but a Deconic rider. And most impressively, their team leader Zenek Stebart flatted out or had a mechanical. He just was like, you know, once you, if you're inside the last 100k of these races and you have a mechanical, like you're done. You just have to hope that you don't have a flat or have a problem with your bike. Because it is. Uh, there's a couple screenshots in the newsletter where even if you can catch back up you can't get back to the front these roads are just too small and they're just too tightly packed across the road um other other takeaways from this is i thought uh, this is kind of an interesting race because it's like ballerini super unusual i did not expect him to win um this is by far the biggest win of his career i should have maybe seen this coming because i said at tour de la de la provence that I haven't seen a side of this guy I've never seen before. He's 26, so he's not super young, but he seems to have gotten a lot better in the offseason. I kind of always thought him as just kind of like a C-rate sprinter, but he's taken, he's kept that sprint speed, but then added an endurance and like a confidence in these tougher courses to get him to the finish in a reduced, reduced group. If you're a sprinter and you're not an elite sprinter and you can't stay you know, stay through tougher courses, like it's gonna, it's hard to get wins. But if you can, you know, make, you know, make a reduced group with a bunch of guys who are, if you can be the fastest guy left, you can win a lot of races. It's like shooting fish in a barrel for these fast guys who can just hang on over tough courses. This is kind of how Mads won on, on Sunday too. So he showed at uh, Provence that he could just, uh, stage two particularly, was so tough, and he, he won the stage. And it, I was thinking, like, wow, and these, uh, I think I said at the time, like, keep an eye on him for Cobble Classics later in the year. And then I forgot to keep an eye on him. So um, shame on me, but the signs were there. He's been having a great season so far, and he's on the perfect team to put him in position to win these races. He converts. Chapeau. Um, second place, Jake Stewart. I had never really heard of this guy before. 21-year-old British guy. Uh, so everyone lost their mind over Tom Pickock. I got like an email from Cycling Tips this morning saying like the most interesting story of the weekend was Tom Pickock's third on, on Sunday at Kern Brussels Kern. I would disagree. I mean, Jake Stewart, same age as Tom Pickock, got second. And Amloop's the bigger race. Amloop is a world tour race. Kern Brussels Kern is not. So that's super interesting. You have a British rider kind of come out of nowhere. He's on Groupama, FDJ. And get second place. Um, he was probably never was gonna beat Ballerini, but hum, almost winning like a pretty sizable classic, one day classic. So if you're British, if you're a British cycling fan, that's someone to keep an eye on. That's super exciting. Uh, can't can't wait to see what he does more. In the, if he's a guy who's, as I said earlier, a fast guy who can just stay on these tough courses, I mean that he could be a very, very, very interesting card to play for that FTJ team. 
Um, Sepp Van Mark in third. We all know Sepp. He's old. He's very old. I think like mid-30s. 33, 34. At, uh, the new team, Israel Startup Nation, gets third place. And he's not even a good sprinter, really. So s- super impressive from him. That shows us he is in great shape. If he's getting third, great shape. And most importantly for Sepp, confident. Because this guy, super talented. He got second to Fabian Cancellara at, I believe, the 2012 Paris-Roubaix. Everyone thought, oh my, this is the next great Belgian rider. He's going to go on and win tons of classics. Like, hasn't won anything since. Just like bad luck. But at some point, is that bad luck or is that just like a self fulfilling issue? He seems to always have an issue with his, his gearing late in classics. Uh, my theory is that's why you shouldn't ride electronic gears because they confuse the cobbles with crashing and they go into a it's called a crash mode and it will turn off to not ruin the bike because if you crash and the bike keeps shifting you can strip the you can kind of rip your derailleur off cause a lot of damage expensive damage i think that's what's happening with his for some reason he keeps riding electric shifting on cobbles when no one else does that for the exact reason i just described um i think that is his one of his I, as silly as it sounds i think one of his main career issues is his team keeps making him ride electronic shifting um but maybe one of the reasons he left his team he's on a new team uh they started they got like three or four riders taken out because they got covid or they were exposed to someone with covid right before the race so he started this race with like not very many teammates to overcome all that um finished third in a bunch sprint is great. I mean, that's a great sign for him. And and th- this is the real cream right here, like third through 10th. This is when you can pick a lot of these guys who not sharp enough to win this race, but strong enough to be there and showing us something. So uh, to me, this is the most interesting part of this weekend. Um, Heinrich Hausler in fourth. He's older now. I mean, yeah, Heinrich is 37. So um, if, if you're old like me, you remember like the 2009 season. He was like the hot new kid on the block, got second at Milan San Remo. We all remember that. That was a devastating loss to Mark Cavendish, where Heinrich just had this, he jumped, he had this great gap, and Cavendish just, I think it may be in Cavendish's most impressive performance in his career, just mows him down in the last 100, 100 meters. Totally dense, just photo finish. Um, everyone's thinking, well, Heinrich's young. This is also a good, a good lesson to, like, well, he's young. Um, He'll, he'll, he'll improve and do better. He never did. This was his best season to date. Second at Milan San Remo, second at Tour of Flanders, um, sixth at Paris Bay. Next year, he's still pretty good. Second at Omloop, wins a fantastic Tour de France stage in there somewhere. Moral of the story, though, just fantastic two year run there. And then the guy just falls off the face of the earth. He had some knee issues, some. Um, Anytime he gives an interview, he just talks about how much he hates cycling. So, yeah, that could be an issue, I would assume. But, yeah, c- comes back out of nowhere. Gets, gets uh, fourth place, looking fantastic. Um, that's someone, I mean, if I had a penny for every time I said, watch out for Heinrich Hausler at these later spring classics, I would just be retired in like a Biza because that, I feel like I say that every year. And then he always disappoints. But this year, I'm, I'm noting it. I'm earmarking that. It's interesting. Philippe Gilbert, fifth place. So I'm kind of, I think people who, if you've only started listening to me in like the last year, since I started this podcast, you'd think I don't like Philippe Gilbert. I, I like Philippe Gilbert. I just think he's, 
this iteration of him, I'm not in love with. I feel like he just gets way overcovered for what he is. He's a 38-year-old former star. Um, who, I mean, just no fault of his own. That, that's, he's had a very long career. But having said that, fifth place in a race like this, who at one point as a young man, Philippe Chalbert was a pretty good sprinter. No longer. I mean, not really a sprint left in him. So to get fifth here shows me that he is in absolutely great shape, um, which is relevant because Milano Sanremo is March 20th, so a little over two weeks from now. And he needs to win that to complete the classic sweep. I did a big piece about that in the newsletter. Um, You can find that if you want to read more about how special that is and how unique it is to be in that position, but he would become the, only the fourth rider of all time to win every classic or monument in his career. And he looks like he's not messing around. I mean, he's in great shape. So that's a big takeaway there. Uh, other than that, I mean, we have like Niels Pollitt in 10th, kind of lurking back there. That's interesting to me. Florian Seneschel, that's interesting to me. Matteo Trenton, he looked... Um, Trenton, I guess Trenton looked good. I was... He looks good. I'll say that. As far as him winning a bigger race later in the year, like a bigger classic, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but th- yeah, those are my big takeaways from from Saturday. You know, it's kind of honestly kind of a boring race. Yeah. Alaphilippe's performance was amazing. Without Alaphilippe, this is probably a, a bit of a snooze fest. I hate to say because I love the Cobble Classics, but yeah, just to have a rider, a group that big in the finish, is a little boring. Uh, but what I wonder about is what, like, what does that tell us? Like, th- that's crazy that you would have that many riders at a race that's normally this selective. Probably tells us that perhaps that late season, um, we have Strada Bianchi's coming up this Saturday. If you think you've lost your mind, no, we, like, we talked about this on the podcast not that long ago because Strada was last fall. They had to reschedule it because of COVID. But I wonder if that rescheduling and the late season means that guys are just in better shape because they're still carrying the fitness from having the Grand Tours that late last year. That's my only guess for why we saw so many, just so many riders able to hang over those tough, those are tough to, two tough climbs to finish the race. So that would be my, my theory there, that we're just seeing a fitter peloton because they haven't had as long, as long of an offseason. Kern Bessel's Kern on Sunday. Uh, Mads Pedersen from Trek Segafredo won. So, I mean, of note, Trek Segafredo, I did not mention them in that last segment because they were terrible. I mean, they, their, their top rider was Alex Kirsch in 63rd place. They didn't have a single rider in that massive league group uh, at Omloop, which is awful. So they, they kind of come back strong here. I didn't include it. I kind of ran out of room in the, in the newsletter, but there were some points like around 60K to go where they were just kind of massing at the front, exactly what you'd want to see for a team trying to deliver someone to that race win, really controlling the front of that race. Uh, Vanderpool, I mean, to me, the big story that is Vanderpool attacked just kind of out of nowhere with 84, 83K to go. Just, he's like sitting far back in the group and he just winds up. You can see him just like winding up and he's so big. He's, I, don't, I mean, he's not like for the general population, like not a big guy, but for cycling, he's like probably like 6'2" like kind of an athletic build. He looks like a, he looks like a dad out there, like, like just, you know, dropping kids. So it looks unfair, but he's like winding up his sprint. Just by the time he hits the front, he's flying, just blows by him. Uh, Jonathan Navarez on 
Ineos goes with him. Super savvy move. I did not really know Navarez had like skills on cobblestones. It's a really, really specific skill set. It's usually, I mean, it almost always. Uh, Navarez is Ecuadorian, so he's not from Europe. But riding on cobblestones is like a European specific skill or racing on them. And not just Europe, but just Northern Europe. I mean, you rarely even see Italian riders. I mean, David Ballerini winning on Saturdays, that's an outlier. There's not many Italian riders winning, Italian or Spanish riders winning these Northern Classics in Belgium. So the fact that he could come from South America and, and not only, I mean, just to have the physical skills, but also the mental skills to know like, oh, well, this is interesting. I should go with Vanderpool because he wins a lot of races with ridiculous attacks like this where the rest of the Peloton just, I don't know if they couldn't go with them or they just thought like, this is crazy, this is too far out. But they were like over three minutes behind the breakaway when they attacked with 82K to go, 83K to go. And by 61K to go, they're in, they've caught the breakaway. So that's crazy to erase a three minute gap in 20 kilometers. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but I think the thing that they, they don't stay away, they get caught with like 1.5 kilometers to go. And I think what doomed them is just Trek being so confident. They didn't really panic. They they controlled the front. They weren't really the ones and they kind of they almost like tricked people. They like tricked other riders into chasing this back for them. Where guys like Casper Askren, John Degenkolb, Matteo Trenton were like really active. Like really active. They were attacking every every berg, every climb. And they couldn't get away. And they actually they did split the peloton. It looked like it was going to be a few small groups contesting the finish, which is unusual. This is uh, like more of a sprinter's race. It's not as hard. I think that's mostly due. You do these two laps in the, in the city of Kern. So it's like this unusual cobbled classic where you're out in the Belgian countryside. These are incredibly difficult races. These are, there's really steep cobbled climbs. Uh, if you're not at the front, you're going to get dropped. And then the races finish. So, you know. You don't have many sprint finishes, but when you do these uh, these laps in Kern, they're just wide open boulevards that are straight and paved and flat, and you can just mow down any a, a big group can just mow down any breakaways, and that's exactly what happened. The peloton after Askren and Degenkolb and Trenton did all this work to to split it up. They get pulled back by the chasing group. If you're watching these on like Eurosport, you'll just see G's at the top of the screen. You're like, what the heck's going on? Why are there green? G1s, G2s, Ps, what does this mean? P is always like Peloton, and then like G1 is like Group 1, Group 2, Group 3. These these races just split up so much. You rarely see the Gs busted out in Grand Tours or, or Italian races, but in the Belgian races, it's G-City at the top of that screen. But just know that's what you're looking at. Like G1 is always the, the leaders of the race. G2 would be the chasing group. And then in this case, G3 was, I'd say, the main Peloton, but... The race was so hard, it was a small group, like 10, 15 riders in the peloton chasing. But G1 and G2 combine once they get into the circuits in Kern. And once that happens, I mean, Casper Askren, I think, sinks the chances again, where he attacked. It was a pretty strong attack, but you got to ask yourself, he attacks with 3.7 kilometers to go. They really would have to screw that up for him to win. It would just have to be like, nap city back there and they totally miss it and they he just rides away for the win but you know that's not that's not really going to happen on a finish like that because everyone in the peloton responded uh by that point i should back up a little bit with 16k to go they're they're in the circuits 
Matthew Vanderpool has ridden up and Navaris have ridden up into the breakaway. Super impressive, by the way. They catch him at 61k to go. If you're going to watch anything in this, in these replays, watch the attack, and then watch them catching the breakaway. They're just they catch him on a steep cobble climb. Vanderpool's riding on the grass, which is illegal. He should have been DQ'd for that. And I think later in the like when you get to Tour of Flanders, you would get DQ'd for that. But they are just him and Navaris are flying like. There's riders getting dropped from the break, and they're blowing by them like they're standing still. And then they just, it just looks so easy for them to catch up to this breakaway. But two guys from the break actually survive a, 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 this Norwegian team, this Uno X Norwegian team. One of the young, they're all just these young Norwegian riders who you've never heard of. I mean, this is like a small, like local team that now is, I think, in the second division. And they race, ex- I think, exclusively with Norwegians. I mean, this actually, I should do a, like a deep dive on this, they spend probably very little money. They don't get any, they don't, these small teams a lot of times they'll go after like washed up stars and they never get results. It's like a total disaster. This guy, these guys are just showing up with young Norwegians. And I think they had three riders in the top 20. And I think that's the most any team had in the top 20 on Sunday. Someone other team might've tied them. Like I think maybe Bora tied them. I mean, there was one Bora guy. So it was like an Uno X Bora. Navares and Vanderpool at the front of the race with 16k to go they look like they're going to get caught they only have maybe 10 seconds it's like well that's an easy calculation like they're going to get reeled in but by 7k to go they have a 22 second gap they pulled it back out and this is almost exclusively due to Vanderpool he was just so strong at the front of that break it was every time the tv switched it switched to the breakaway it was Vanderpool at the front it was a super impressive performance um and if Askren attacks with 3.7k to go, the gap is still about 20 seconds. They're not really pulling it back. But Askren's move was so vicious, and the Peloton responded you know, so attentively that it ups the pace by enough that a kilometer later, the Vanderpool group is like just a few seconds off the front. And at that point, it's over. So you, you, can, you can tell when you're watching it once they get within four or five seconds. With a few kilometers left, it's it's done, and they catch him with 1.5k to go. And then, what I thought was kind of impressive is Jasper Stuyven, who won this race in 2016, and he won Amu last year, so he could easily have raced this for himself. Gives Mads Pedersen the perfect lead out. I mean, Mads is turning into the type of rider where if you take him to a small 30 rider sprint finish, he's just going to win. After a hard day of racing, he's becoming one of the best in the world. At that, and that's how he won his world championship in 2019. He just—he was kind of under. No one really thought of him as a sprinter back then, but they brought him to the line and he toasted him in a sprint finish after probably one of the hardest races you'll ever see in pro cycling. But yeah, I—you I, kept hearing like Sonny Corbelli, Greg Van Avermaet, Teo Trenton talked about on the uh, on the commentary no one ever talks about mads he's the invisible man john degenkall but also someone everyone talks about all the time and then mads just toast these guys uh Pickott gets third anthony turgis gets second from total direct energy that's a great result for him and that team tom Pickott gets third really good result for him super impressive i kind of was skeptical of the Pidcock movement like what has this guy ever really done like sure he's gotten a few cross results never really done anything on the road at the senior level but that's that's legit. Third at Kern. Um, I do think he's coming off cross. He's got residual fitness from that. So I, I like like to see him 
see if he can hold that. He is, I, I was shocked to find he's only 58 kilometers, which is like, a, or 58 kilograms, which is like 127 pounds, which is tiny. So the fact that he could even hang in over the cobbles, the cobbles tend to favor heavier riders just because you don't, don't get bounced around as much. And these are flatter courses, so lightweight isn't as important. Um, super impressive. Uh, kind of like a Paolo Bettini-esque. The, the cricket, he was like a super, I guess he was 127 pounds too, but he was multi-time world champion. Uh, great like Milan San Remo, uh, Gio de Lombardia, that type like a hilly Liege, best on Liege. That actually could be where Pickcock shines, not these cobbled classics. Because I, I would think he's too small for something like Tour of Flanders. I could be wrong. I'd like to see him prove me wrong. He's certainly too small for Paris-Roubaix. That's not going to happen. And I mean, you, you think of, uh, it is interesting, Julian Alaphilippe's team manager said just a few years ago he shouldn't even try to win the Coppola Classics because he's too small. And he, he's kind of, at this point, so he's 60 kilometers. He's only four or five pounds heavier than Pidcock. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Julian at this point has proved that, I think he proved with that ride on Saturday that like he's probably got to be considered a favorite for two of Flanders. He, he looks unbothered on those cobblestones being that light. Last year, he could have won the race. He could have won at Flanders, but he hit a motorcycle when he wasn't looking and crashed out. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't write Pickcock off too much. But I just think that's pushing it. 127 pounds is so small to be duking it out at these one-day classics that really favor pure power over power to weight. So, we'll see. And he's actually, Pickcock's someone to keep an eye on for Saturday for Strada Strada Bianchi. Uh, that's actually a great race for him. Um, also, watch out for Philippe and Gilbert. Both those guys look super, super fit right now, and that's a great course for them. But just to finish up the thoughts from Kern, I worry we are. We saw a lot of Greg Van Avermaet both days, both days, and it was like Greg Van Avermaet looking good. This is vintage Van Avermaet at the front, present and accounted for. It looks great. They talk about him a ton on the commentary. But he just does, he does so much to pull the race back together. He'll, the, the classic Van Avermaet move is miss the move and then do everything you can to try to get the move back while other people sit in, don't do anything, and then beat you at the end. I mean, this is one of his like, biggest, it's like his worst habit. And it looked like he's falling back into that. I mean, we saw both Saturday and Sunday that happening. Um, there's no doubting his form. He looks, he looks fantastic. And he looks like he's building perfectly for, you know, Strada Bianchi, Milan Sanremo, Tour Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. But it's this question of can he, can he like put that need to do everything on the back burner? That would be the big thing I'd worry about him. Uh, Quick Step looked awful. If they, they were like great on Saturday, they were nowhere to be seen on. Sunday, they... I mean, Casper Askren looked great. He won this race last year. He was the Finney champion, and he was just kind of like left out the dry. I mean, he was just doing everything himself, like attacking mid-race, trying to make something happen. He gets pulled back to big group. He's not a great sprinter. He's not going to win from that. So that's why he tried the kind of last-ditch move with 3.7K to go. Of course, that doesn't work, and they just don't have like a plan B there. That was, you know, I wouldn't, you don't press the panic button over a bad performance at Kern Brussels Kern, but that's something to keep an eye on. I mean, if they won't really want to storm these bigger classics later, that's that's a concerning little performance right there. Um, 
Mats Pedersen, I'm so he never does well at these early races. I think the best result he had was like 39th at Omloop, Omloop like five, six years ago. He's normally, you know, nowhere to be seen at these, at this for opening weekend. So this is a big win, big, you know, he's deviating from his normal uh, arc, fitness arc. Looked great. Almost nothing negative to say about him, except um, I think only like one or two riders in the history of the sport have won Kern Brussels Kern and Tour Flanders in the same year. So slightly concerned that maybe he's peaking too soon. The last guy to, to do that double was Andre Temchel, something like that, in uh, the year 2000. So it's unusual. We'll see that maybe, maybe that's all out the window with the compressed with the last season being so close to this season. Um, I don't know. I guess that's a possibility. I'm concerned, though. This is great, a great win. I don't want to take anything away from this win. He looked great. Great win for him. Uh, might be peaking a little bit too soon. But someone to keep an eye on, certainly for Milano Sanremo. That is not too far away. It's not too far out to double up this weekend and uh, win one of the Italian races, Strada or Milano. I mean, Uno X talked about them. Crazy, crazy good team. I think Irvsby Heidberg is the, the young kid who was in the break. He was in the day long breakaway. <laughs> they get bridged up to by Navaris and Vanderpool, and then he just hangs on. Super impressive. And then when they got caught, he tried to jump in the line and help his two teammates who were up there trying to sprint for the win. So I, I couldn't have been more impressed by that. That team might have been, that may have been my biggest takeaway from the day. Well, no, let me, let me blunt that statement. That was my second biggest takeaway because my biggest takeaway was Vanderpool. So if I said on Saturday, Philippe, that was the best performance I'd ever seen from a rider who didn't win the race, that might have been uh, defunct by Sunday because, wow, that was incredible. I mean, he's done this before. I mean, he at stage, I think that was stage, last stage, so stage five, six of the Bing Bang Tour in 2000. He just, he was having trouble all week getting a stage win. So he's just like, ah, screw it. I'll go from 70K out solo and just win the race the day before Liege, best on Liege. Uh, Cause I don't care. <laughs> I guess he just doesn't like, he'll just ride hard no matter what. And then he won the race solo. Probably hurt him the next day. He probably would have won Liege if he wouldn't have done that. But he, proof of concept right there, he can win just from extremely far out attacks, uh, which is why I su- was surprised the Peloton seemed unbothered by i don't know if they were unbothered or there's just nothing they could do because it ended it ended up working out okay but it it came close to being a total disaster just letting the race right up the road at 83k out um i was wondering when this was happening like what what is he thinking why is he doing this does he really think he has a chance to stay stay away is this the best is this really maximizing his win potential here because he could just sit in. He probably could have sat in and won that race in the sprint. I think he could have beat Pedersen in the sprint. So why is he doing this? But, you know, and, and sometimes I, I'm pretty harsh on him because I think he's a horrible, he's one of the worst tactical riders we have at the level he's at. Out of all like the blue chip riders, he's probably the worst tactician in the sport. He just races like a, like a strong junior who can just drop everyone. Um, and that's where his physical strength probably hurts him a little bit as an overall racer and i thought just again that oh wow he's just he's he's stuffed this up um he's never gonna he's never gonna be this is my internal monologue just watching him he's never gonna be a great racer because he's he's always doing these stupid moves but uh, the the more distance i get between the race 
and his performance. I wonder if actually kind of a smart thing to do, because does Matthew Vanderpool really care about winning Kern Brussels Kern? Like, no, he doesn't. I, don't, I doubt he cares at all. Um, so it's just like he really got, <laughs> this is crazy so it's to say, but like a good training day. I mean, he's out, he's out. These guys are like, these are the best riders in the world all trying to win this race. And he's just out there like, oh, I, I need to get off the front so I can, uh, I don't have to ride slow. I can actually get a good workout. But that's kind of, I mean, you know, if you want to play a part in these, in these bigger classics that are longer, you've got to get used to expending just, just huge amounts of wattage for so long. And that's what he did. He's kind of turning his body from, you know, the explosive short efforts of cross to the longer, more sustained efforts on the road necessary to win these events. Today was a great, a great step forward for that because that these are, it's a great effort. You can't even really replicate that in training. So Andy gave himself a shot to win. He could have won. So it's not even like he threw the race away with that move. Like I necessarily thought he did at the beginning, but, uh, yeah, not not a lot negative to say about it. I I have been a few people, a few readers have emailed in. You can email me at beyond the Peloton blog at gmail.com. No. Beyond the Peloton pod at gmail.com. But a few people have emailed saying he might just be, you know, flying from residual cross fitness. I'm I'm very wary of that. I think that probably is happening. But if there's someone who can just like prove us wrong and be like, actually, I can be in peak fitness all the time, it's Vanderpool. I mean, he's probably he's one of the most talented riders I've ever seen. I said that about Peter Sagan, said that about Woot Van Aert. He's possibly more talented than both of those guys, which is crazy to say because they're both incredibly talented and unique riders. So that's it on on Kern. Some 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 good things to learn there, but we don't want to we don't want to read too much into it. Um, tomorrow we have another race, La Siam, which is. Odd mid- midweek classic you get thrown at you, but kind of an interesting, get a lot of good names, and it's kind of a more fun race, I think, because there's just less, you get, you get like more wild card winners, like Nick, Nicky Terpster always wins it, or he's won it a few times, Florian Seneschal, Hugo Hofstetter, um, a, fun, a super interesting race that if you, for some reason, are able to watch a bike race in the middle of the week, um, tune in for that. If not, don't worry about it. I will grab the important bits and put it in a newsletter. Probably, probably won't. Uh, once I'm re-recording, when I'm recording the next pod, Las I am will be a distant memory. But I was gonna do a preview of Strada Bianchi, Strada Bianchi, uh, which is funny because I think that's what the first episode of this podcast was about, and it doesn't feel like that was that long ago. But the start list is so incomplete. Um, I went to look at the start list, and there's like nobody on it. So I don't know if guys are just playing it by ear or what's happening um teams just haven't gotten their list in yet but um i can tell you that julian alaphilippe's going to be there i have to assume philippe gilbert is going to be there tom pickcock's definitely someone to keep an eye on um jean-luca brambilla from trek definitely an outsider to keep an eye on um i'm seeing peter sagan's going to be there i i bet he's actually not very good right it's because he got covid and he wasn't at these races he was training i don't think he's really going to play a part in this race, but Jean-Luc is definitely someone that could could come from out out of nowhere, so to speak, and win this race. He looked fantastic at Tour de Var. Yeah, Tour de Var. I mean, he was really strong. He's flying right now. Uh, Greg Van Avermaet. I don't think he'll win. I think a lot of it's like what happens all the time is these older guys get talked about all the time because they're just familiar to the media and they don't win, and then people are shocked when they don't win. 
Uh, David Formolo on UAE Team Emirates. He's someone to keep an eye on. Tade Bogachar is going to be there. Super interesting to watch him. He could win this race. Um, it, it, I might I might pop on on like Thursday or Friday and do a more in-depth preview of this race. But if I don't, keep an eye on those riders. And have a great week and enjoy the racing. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.